Welcome to BSI, Variation Selection Inheritance, a podcast production of the National Science Foundation's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action. I'm Randall Hayes. There are groups of people with particular talents. Artists create, specialists focus, dig deep into particular subjects, and a group of people that some people call dabblers or dilettantes, but which I will more flatteringly call synthesists, have the ability to see connections between different fields. They seem able to process a lot of disparate information and see large-scale general patterns in that data. That was what Charles Darwin actually did to cause so much trouble. He took the same deck of facts and reshuffled them to produce a hand that nobody had ever seen before. He then spent 20 years digging to show that his new hand was in fact a straight flush. He combined imagination and perseverance in a way that is really, really, really rare. My guest today is a synthesist. Her first book, Evil Genes, How Hitler Rose, Rome Fell, Enron Failed, and My Sister Stole My Mother's Boyfriend, combined genetics, neuroscience, uh, personal history about her relationship with her sister, and short case studies of historical dictators like Hitler and Mao Zedong. It was basically an attempt to answer the question, why are some people so bad? Now she's got a new pair of books out asking, why are the rest of us so good, even when it's not good for us? We'll talk about those books some next week. Today what I want to do is continue the thread about personality that we kind of started with Freddie Herrera last week. Why does one person get off on plants while another person goes to medical school to treat patients? How can two people react so differently to the same exact lecture? It may be as simple as the fact that plants are not so emo as people are. I know that I got frustrated with my creative writing minor when, as a joke, I wrote this complete bullshit essay arguing that Shakespeare was talking to his own penis in one of the sonnets. I think I got an A- minus on it. Many people would have been ecstatic to get away with that, but I was kind of disappointed. Not only did my professor not get the joke, she honestly seemed to think that a good argument is an argument that sounds good. I was very frustrated by that lack of objectivity, and I think that was one of the things that pushed me into science. You'll hear some of that same frustration from Barbara Oakley. You have to remember that in many, in the social sciences, and uh, having no, I, I greatly respect the social sciences. There's a lot of fantastic um, research that's come out of it. But by the same token, um, in the social sciences, you can have a important uh, theory that is dead wrong, and everybody will sail along aboard this theory for 40, 50, 60 years. In engineering, you get a theory that's wrong, your plane goes down and everybody dies. Do you think that that cultural difference comes out of sort of a personality selection or out of, um, of a method 
problem where it's just hard to do social experiments? I I think it's the former. Really? So who ends up being an engineer? Are you familiar with uh, Simon Baron Cohen's empathizing systemizing work? What he did was he developed some tests to see how strong of empathizing or systemizing you are. His hypothesis has been that people tend to be more either empathizing or systemizing. Certainly women are very, usually, on average, much higher in empathizing. Men, on average, are much higher in systemizing. His hypothesis has been that, you know, usually there's not so many that are high in both. There's sort of not a strong correlation that way. You're either one way or the other. Well, I just did a big study at um, Oakland University of 1,800 students, in, and 1,600 of them answered um, questions about their political affiliation. Um, they also answered all sorts of questions about their, uh, you know, what was their major and so forth. It was crystal clear that, for example, engineers, you know, they're very high on systemizing, low on empathizing. Psychology majors, on the other hand, were low on systemizing and much higher on empathizing. Uh, when we did the correlation on um, as far as people's political parties, interestingly enough, if you considered yourself very liberal, you were high on empathizing and on systemizing. So a category that that Simon Baron Cohen thought that you know there just weren't very many people that way, enough so that he he never really did much with it because he didn't think there was people in that category. But there sure are, and they're called very liberal. Uh, but at any rate, this goes back to the question you were posing, do people self-select? Uh, it's clear to me that they absolutely do. People who go into psychology tend to have lower systemizing skills. I just see it in the data. Well, I know that certainly uh, our biologists and my own experience as a student, people go into biology because they don't like math and they're good at memorizing things. Yep. So as opposed to, say, chemistry or physics, people – and that people self-select basically as they move through the system and they discover, I'm good at this, so I'm going to keep doing it. Yes, and I think that also shapes what they look for and what they find in their research. You would assume so. So you're saying that maybe social scientists like psychologists are looking for specific things, and so that's what they find. That's really quite clear. I mean, there's a, a yes, that, that can very definitely happen. I mean, even look at these studies by Zimbardo and by um, Milgram. These were not scientific studies. There's no hypothesis. It's a fable that was set up to tell the story that they wanted to tell. There's no science there. Uh, so the, um, the Milgram story is the one about the – are you speaking about the, the prison experiment or about that the, was the Zimbardo shocking people experiment? experiment? Okay. Uh, Zimbardo was at prison, and Milgram was the one with the, um, you know, the shocking of people. There's no science in there. Those are stories meant to play on people's emotions – uh, and get them to buy into what he believes is true. But there's no rationality there. One of the ideas that I've been playing with, it comes out of game theory, blaming another person for something as opposed to being an engineer and just looking for the solution. Yes. Whereas 
punishment is a thing that you do in order to change another person's behavior. And it turns out that humans really like punishing other people. So I've started to wonder whether some of these sort of intractable social issues almost boil down to us humans just playing these social games with one another because that's kind of what we're wired to do and we, what we like to do, as opposed to dispassionately looking at the issues and treating them as an engineer would, saying, here's a problem, how do we fix it? I like your thinking. For example, if you look at, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm grumbling today. I probably am in a grumbling mood. <laughs> it's raining. <laughs> yeah. So I hope I don't, you know, come across as this complete curmudgeon because there's so many fascinating things. I look at, for example, the field of sociology. Now, what should happen from an engineering perspective uh, or just from a fact-based perspective is we're getting this fascinating information about um, from neuroscience about how people's own biology can influence how they act. And that that's a really, really important part of understanding all sorts of social problems. But it, it's almost as if they're afraid of the ideas coming out of biology and coming out of uh, the neuroscience that show that many of their theories are, you know, th there's some real problems going on. But rather than sort of reseat the field on the biological um, underpinnings that it also needs to have, instead uh, it's like they hold their fingers up in a cross and say, you know, don't come near me. Um, I've had sociology professors, you know, point towards my work and say it's pseudoscience or it's aromatherapy. And I wonder, at least within the well-funded sciences, it's, it's probably not nice to call them hard sciences, but within the well-funded sciences, it's easy to see when those, those conflicts happen. Then you start to go across boundaries, and then you start to get into things which fields get funded. I think there's a lot of bad feeling that comes across from, from sort of those issues. Well, I think that's true. But also, for example, I remember p picking up a fairly recent um, magazine from the Sociology Society with a big article about this family that had um, sort of fallen through the cracks and they weren't being supported by, uh, you know, government aid or they were trying to get on it. And when you read through this article, it was extraordinarily clear that this family, um, the the church that had been trying to help them out became so disgusted at how they were being built by this family that they finally threw their hands up and, and said, no, you you know, we just can't. And, and that this family was basically going around conning different groups. And yet they showed this picture of her of uh, giving birth, and it looked like she was a Madonna. And you could read the words where it was clear this family was conning everybody, but it was written up by the... The, in the article, as if it was this was this poor family that had just been, 
you know, screwed over by the system. And I just thought, whoever is writing this has been so indoctrinated into there are no bad people who con systems that they can't even seem to see what's right in front of them. It's almost like sociology designed to um, uphold the theory that anyone who acts badly has always been created to be that way by their environment. And if we just dump a whole bunch of money into it, we will be able to fix all of the, you know, all of the country's problems. And that's just absurd. Well, and that's one of the problems with, with that kind of either-or thinking to begin with, right? It, the, one of the things that's always driven me crazy is the phrase nature or nurture, yeah. as though they're mutually exclusive. Right. And, and then you have fields that pick one side, fields that pick another side, when it's perfectly obvious you have to build the machine that gets nurtured. But there's, there's a third way that what happens bothers me. And the third way is people say, oh, no, it's not. Of course, we, we know it's not just nature, and we know it's not just nurture. It's 50-50. But that's not true either. Here's how I think is the best way to think of it. On average, absolutely. It's 50-50 on average. But any specific instance is not at all necessarily 50-50. As probably more of a sympathizer, or sorry, sympathizer, I mixed the two words, more of a systematizer. I mean, you're in an engineering department. Have you taken any of these tests yourself? Are you high on both? Or Yeah, I'm really high on both. Um, and I think uh, part of it is, see, I enlisted right out of high school because my dream job was to become a professor of linguistics. I hated science, I hated mathematics, I hated anything to do with anything technological. So I enlisted, went to the Defense Language Institute, um, studied Russian there, and got an in-service ROTC scholarship that allowed me to go and get my first degree in Slavic languages and literature from the University of Washington. And so then the military, in all their great wisdom, um, made me a Signal Corps officer, and I went to West Germany as the token female signal officer in the 34th Signal Battalion. And I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know what a volt was, a watt, or any of that kind of stuff. But what I saw during those four years was that having an understanding um, from a scientific and technological perspective of what was going on was very empowering. And my own interest in language, I think part of that grew out of the fact that I I moved all the time growing up because my father was in the military, and I I was always getting different perspectives, right? Because by the time I hit 10th grade, I'd lived in 10 different places. So after a while, um, you start, or I began thinking, wow, you know, I'm getting different perspectives on life. This is really interesting. I think that maybe if I start studying different perspectives through the lens of of different languages and cultures, that that might be even more empowering. So that's what I was trying to kind of get a grip on reality by studying um, how we perceive, you know, through language. But that also made me realize, you know, as I was looking, when I was starting to get out of the military, I thought, gosh, you know, if I really want to see 
how reality works by trying different perspectives and frameworks, there is probably nothing more alien to my personality than engineering. So why don't I try that out and see if I can do it? So you honestly went in it almost despite yourself? Well, I wouldn't say despite myself, <laughs> but simply because I realized that it was so completely alien to my mindset. And if I really wanted to try new perspectives, that would be about as new as you could possibly get. So I tried the same thing with my postdoc, and it didn't work out so well. So I, I pushed myself almost a little too far. But it sounds as though as though engineering turned out to be good for you. Well, I think there was a, set, a couple of different things going on. Number one is um, I think that there was an underlying ability there that had never been tapped because I had moved away or I'd moved so often and then I just gave up. But there was still some kind of native ability in that area. In other words, there was I mean, there's some stuff that's starting to come out now that, um, like, there are people who are math blind, so to speak. Well, I think I, I I thought I was math blind, but I think there's some something there because I've definitely taught people that. I mean, there was nothing there to begin with. You couldn't get at it. You know, it's not that I'm miss humble or anything like that because you can't be when you're working around a bunch of engineers. I mean, they'll just eat you alive. But I also or recognize cops my, or soldiers. <laughs> yeah, I recognize my own limitations, and so, like, particularly in the beginning when I was starting to readapt and try to learn how to learn math, I I didn't do like most people and you know take a full co a load or anything. I stepped way back. Um, I took as few courses as I could. I always started lower than a level that I thought I could start at. And I'll bet you a dollar that if you had had a little more time, um, that you could have grappled with those problems just as well as I was able to. Well, that part of that was the issue. And I see this actually in my students. Part of my issue was that I, my, my wife and I had a child at the same time. Oh my goodness. That I was trying to do this as a postdoc. And so the first six months of my postdoc, I don't even remember because I there was so go. sleep deprived. There you go. You know, regardless of my example, I see that in my students all the time. They're simply trying to do too much. Yep. And, you know, you can't take 18 hours of classes and work full time. Yeah. You know, and I guess if it's if it's one thing that I was smart enough to realize, it's that I'm I'm kind of stupid sometimes, and to be uh, be lenient with myself that way, and it's it makes me laugh. You know, it's like the smarter people didn't give themselves that option, and then sometimes they crap out as a result, and here I am, not as smart as they are, and yet somehow it turned out smarter in the long run. Uh, isn't that funny how that works? Well, actually, it, it's it's hilarious, but it's also, I think, not uncommon because I teach honors students, and they've been told that they're smart. The distinction between trait-based thinking and process-based thinking. Mm -hmm. They've been told that they're smart, and so 
not only do they have huge anxiety about doing anything that makes them look not smart, they actually begin to think strategically and safely about doing things that will just confirm the image of themselves that they've already got. And, and it, it all becomes about image management rather than becoming about the learning. You don't care very much about that sort of thing. I guess when you acknowledge early on your, that you have some real big limitations, it's very freeing. Sometimes I, what I found, uh, and I, I call it the Oakley principle, you know, because I figure, what the heck, might as well name something at me after me, you know, uh, it, you know, why not? But it's the idea that really smart people, they can become very inflexible. You you can't like present them with how they've done something wrong, and then um, have them correct uh, you know correct things. And they also have more difficulty grappling with really hard problems that require insights from a lot of different people. And here's my reasoning behind this: is simply if you're really smart, you're always the smartest one in the room, right? You're always right. So you don't get used to people telling you you're wrong and, and then being correct about it. And so you start after a while, you're like everybody who's ever tried to correct you, you know, they're usually wrong. And so you just learn to discount that all the time. You always think you're the smart, you know, you're right. So you don't learn to adapt and take criticism. I was trained at a medical school, not an engineering school. And I noticed that, in the, that that was actually part of the training graduate students who was very sort of boot campish and your first year was basically spent finding out that you don't know anything whereas the medical students were sort of constantly reinforced with you've been selected you're the best of the best you will have to make split second decisions and it wasn't really until they hit their clinical time that they were harshly challenged and that by that time it was almost too late <laughs> To, cr to crush their egos. That's very interesting. Well, can you tell me more about your own background and what you're doing? And, and can, you, can we go off on a side? Sure. How uh, you ended up where you are? I did a biology degree at the University of Kentucky, doing mostly molecular-y type things, being a real klutz in the lab. Uh, I almost <laughs> set our good. Swedish postdoc's hair on fire. Oh, my. So I was not invited back <laughs> into that lab. <laughs> and uh, and so I then you know spent a couple of years waiting tables and working at a tape library. Then got interested in the brain and discovered that I could get paid to go to school. And since I was working a minimum, a slightly above minimum wage job, and it was a recession, uh, I, I went back to school to a neuroscience program at the University of Rochester, uh, the one in New York, not the one in Minnesota. Uh-huh. Mostly full of medical faculty, but with some people from uh, the Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, which was not just psychology, but uh, there was also a center for visual sciences there that had a lot of engineers, partly because there's an adaptive optics institute there that was mm -hmm. funded back when uh, Bausch and Lomb and Kodak and Xerox were all, you know, sort of on top of the world. Mm -hmm. So they funded 
a lot of optics work, which then kind of led into uh, engineers working on the visual system, sort of treating it as, as light signals passing through a mm -hmm. system of electrical relays, which it kind of is. Yeah, actually, I think the more I learn about that area, that it's like the cooler it is. That was the mix in graduate school. And, and graduate school was really, really exhilarating. But, but when I got to graduate school, suddenly everybody was smart. Uh -huh. And that was when I had to learn how to work. Ah. Your focus in what you're working on now, and how, how does this tie in with what you want to do long term? Podcast grew out of a specific grant on evolution and getting biologists to talk to engineers oh. and to use uh, evolutionary principles in technology and in general. I just proposed this to them as uh, a way of doing outreach to the public and to undergraduate students. I'm not an evolutionary biologist sort of an expression of my general interest in talking about science in ways that are not specifically designed for the training of scientists. I think that scientific knowledge benefits everybody, whereas most PhD biologists who are teaching are mostly interested in it as vocational training. Oh. And so then, you know, I read books like yours. That same thread is there, right? I uh -huh. mean, who does a, a dense academic tome and then illustrate it with a true crime book? I mean, nobody does that. Oh. Well, that, it's, it's so funny because I guess I do. I look around and I'm like, now, wait a minute. What the hell am I doing? You know, I don't see anybody else do anything like this. Am I nuts? You know, also because it's, it's really hard to keep two completely different projects balanced and springing forward, one that's intensely academic and the other that's um, bringing in uh, ideas from academia, but you know, is written to tell, uh, to give insight into that science and also to tell a riveting story. Why aren't more people doing it? Because I have to say, I got so much insight from doing both together. Um, each one informed the other. You know, I'm sitting here working on uh, the popular book and find out that the you know, the killer is a, an animal hoarder. Well, let's find out about, you know, that's helping animals, right? Not necessarily. Let's let's have a chapter in pathological altruism about animal hoarding as a pathology of altruism. I think it takes a very specific kind of mind to say, animal hoarding? You mean like the cat lady who has way too many cats? Huh. Sure, let's take a look at that and see if there's anything there. Synthesists and probably paranoid schizophrenics make their mistakes on the side of trying to include everything in their theories. Science as it is currently organized, in my personal opinion, errs on the side of being too specialized, of excluding everything but your own teeny little question. 
There are good reasons to specialize that have nothing to do with your question. Specialists, as any good student of ecology knows, can narrow their field of competition for resources, like, oh, say, grant money. Grad students are encouraged, maybe required would be a better word, to be specialists. People with Nobel Prizes who can study whatever they want get to be synthesists. I think that's led to the idea that synthesizing requires more intelligence than specializing, or at least more experience. I want to argue that it's simply a different skill set. Equally useful, complementary to a deep and detailed knowledge of a single field. I think it's a teachable skill set, too, although I haven't personally had very much success at teaching it. I could be entirely wrong about that. It could be a personality thing, like the differences between empathizing and systematizing that Simon Baron Cohen was working on. Or maybe it's a failure of the tribal mechanisms that make fitting in socially more important than being right. I suspect it's probably both, an inborn tendency that's magnified by learning. But we'll have to tackle those issues next week. VSI is produced by me, Randall Hayes, at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, with editing help from Lauren Branch, and with funding from the National Science Foundation. Thanks for listening.